Have you guys ever done a Rorschach test? You know, you, you take a bunch of ink and you just splatter it on a page and, and you see what people think it looks like. You know, those things drive me crazy because I never see what they tell you to see. They tell you, hey, if you look at it this way, you see an old man. But if you look at it this way, you see an old woman. I just see a bunch of ink spilled on the page. Maybe you remember a, a, a few years ago. I mean, it's not that long ago. They had these uh, pictures that were very colorful, but like the picture was not the picture. There was a, there was a picture hidden within the picture. You guys know what I'm talking about? Where you kind of had to go cross-eyed to see it. Man, the only thing I would see is headaches when I got done with that. I hated those things. Because, you know, everyone else was going, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I'm going, I don't see a thing. What are you talking about? Life is that way sometimes. And you even heard a little bit with Braylon and Whitney's testimony that what they looked like on the outside didn't match up with who they were on the inside. They looked religious. They looked saved. But what, they were, what had happened is they had kind of a thin veneer of Christian stuff, but it wasn't the gospel. Does that make sense? You, you follow what I'm saying? Listen, we should know that because we live in one of the most Christian, Christian veneered places on the face of the planet. We live in the Bible Belt. where Everybody's a Christian, uh, just they don't know who Jesus is. South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama. And so this morning... We recognize the truth that one of the things that makes life difficult is people aren't all that they seem to be sometimes. There are people that really seem to be righteous, and then when you get to know them, you go, wait a second, what did they do? There are some people who appear righteous who aren't. And as we continue our story series through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be in chapter uh, 12 today. That's page 726 in the Pew Bible if you don't have your own copy of the Scriptures. Take that. It's a gift from our church. We want you to keep it. We want every household to have a Bible. But Jesus is going in, in chapter 12 through a series of controversies with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees become a case in point for these people who appear righteous, but at their core, they are rotten apples. They are messed up. They have the strictest rules for living. They have the most stringent moral code. They have all kinds of rigid standards of morality. Yet their rules, their standards, and their morals, all that it did was make them, make them proud. Make them lift their nose a little higher so they could look down at everybody. The thing that's interesting about Jesus' ministry is he certainly had no problem reaching the poor and the prostitutes, but he had all kinds of problems reaching the religious establishment. They didn't like him because he challenged the status quo. And so this morning, we kind of continue this whole story series of controversy and we find out that um, when people tell Jesus not to rock the boat, he doesn't listen. He's going to make some more waves this morning. And he's going to make them with the uh, religious leaders. He's even going to make them with his own family. And one of the things that we will find is that in some ways, you're better off being grossly immoral and aware of your need for a Savior than being religious and having no idea of your need for Jesus. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. Let me ask for God's blessings. God, we, we know that to clean the outside of the cup while the inside is all muddy does not make for a clean cup. And unfortunately, God, there are so many ways in which we try to clean up the outside of our life without really looking for a change of heart, a change of character. And God, you have come to bring that, 
And I pray that today, through the preaching of your word, we can lift that up and we can evaluate our lives to see what kind of people we are. Are we just outwardly clean or are we thoroughly converted? God, I pray that you'll help us to discover that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the course of chapter 12, there have been three controversies that Jesus has found himself in. If you have been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll remember these. The first is the Sabbath controversy. Jesus is walking from place to place, and his disciples are hungry. There's no refrigerators. There's no none of that. So they, they grab, some, grab some heads of grain and rub them together and get, get some quick uh, Quaker oats you know, while they're traveling. And it creates a controversy with the Pharisees because they want to know, why did Jesus feel the right to break the Sabbath? What is Jesus' relationship to the law? Because we think the law forbids this. So the first controversy is the Sabbath controversy. The second controversy is the one we looked at last week. It's the spirit controversy. Jesus performs a great healing. And you remember what they say? You know how Jesus has the power to do that? Because he is Beelzebub himself. He, he has power over the demons because he's the archdemon himself. So what is Jesus' relationship to the spirit world? Well, today we come to the sign controversy. The Pharisees, in just a second, are going to ask him for a sign. And basically, they are asking Jesus, what indeed is your relationship to God? Can you do miracles on demand? And that's the context that we find ourselves in. And so we'll begin in verse 38 of chapter 12. And our first point is this, that Jesus will give the greatest sign because he is the greatest prophet. And that's not going to make a whole lot of sense until we walk through the rest of our scripture passage here this morning. But Jesus will give the greatest sign because he is the greatest prophet. Look at verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. The Pharisees are at this point Jesus' arch enemy. We mentioned at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is at war uh, with these people. They have declared war on him. They have already declared they're going to kill him. It's a year before they'll be able to do it, but they have already established the fact that this man will die because we believe he is a heretic. Well, here's what's interesting. What do they call Jesus? Teacher. Teacher. Teacher, will you teach us something? Will you give us a sign? And this whole request, dressed up in the veneer of politeness, is phony. It's bogus. They call him teacher, which has got to be at least a tad bit sarcastic, because they've already said he's a blasphemer and a heretic. And so there are people who will ask you about what they can pray about for you and then never pray for you. Why would you do that? Well, uh, let's be gracious. Perhaps you just are forgetful. And then you see the person next week and you go, oh, shoot, there's John. God bless John. Hey, prayed for you this week. I, listen, I know you have done it. You've done it. But there are some people who their whole purpose in asking, hey, how can I pray for you, is they want you to think they're much more spiritual than they really are. And that's what the Pharisees do. Teacher... And they ask for a sign. What's the difference between a sign and a miracle? Well, according to the Pharisees, a miracle was something a little more terrestrial, something a little more earthy. So maybe you are like a witch doctor, and you know what what herbs and roots to blend together to affect a, a healing. A sign is something unmistakable. And so they're going, well, you know, Jesus, I know you did that miracle last week, but it could have been demonic power that you did it by. So why don't you do a sign for us instead of a miracle and prove unambiguously who you are. Now, the word sign is usually used for something of cosmic significance. 
So, um, hey, Jesus, why don't you turn the Big Dipper upside down? Why don't you, you know, make the moon go backwards instead of forward? They're asking for something uh, heavenly instead of earthly and something that is completely unambiguous. Here's the problem. Every miracle that Jesus has done is a sign of who he is. Whether it's healing a lame man, giving a man sight, giving a man the opportunity to speak again, raising people from the dead, uh, healing a guy with a crippled hand. Everything he has done has been a sign pointing to who he is. But they want to ask for his credentials, for his verification. And they're going to cast doubt on everything that he's done and say, you know what, Um, you may have proved it to like the normal people, but the jury's still out for us. If you're the son of God, do a sign. Do something big. Jesus replies pretty curtly that he doesn't do wonders for, you know, wandering curiosities. Look at verses 39 through 41. Jesus answered them and said, An evil and spiritually adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's proclamation, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. And when Jesus says that they are an evil and adulterous generation, Jesus is not uh, professing to secret knowledge about what happens in their bedroom. When you hear the word adulterous, that's, I think, automatically the first thing that our minds go to. He's talking about spiritual adultery, that they have been faithful to another God and not to the God of the Scriptures. He says this to the Pharisees who pay lots of attention to the Old Testament. So that went over like a load of bricks. Basically what he's saying is you have created a God of your own creation in your own image by adding all your rules and your rigid moralities and strict codes of conduct and you're not even worshiping the God of the Bible anymore. You're spiritually adulterous. You're cheating on Yahweh by worshiping the God of your own creation. He says, listen, it's not faith to ask for a sign. You ask for a sign, it's because you're evil. I've already done signs, and anything that I do do, you're just going to use against me. It's a lose-lose for Jesus almost. He says, you know, hey, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It'll be the sign of Jonah. I sit there and go, is that like the artist formerly known as Prince? What in the world is the sign? What kind of billboard is that? The sign of of Jonah? Is that like, you know, is that what the, that, that fish that we put on the back of our car, is that the sign of Jonah? You know, some big, big fish? No, it's not. Jesus is here talking about his resurrection because he says that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. And by doing this, he says, you want a sign? The biggest sign I can possibly give you is on its way. It's called my resurrection. Here's the thing that's crazy. Jesus will get up out of the grave and they still won't believe. There's a story that Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And there's a man who is uh, blessed with all the fineries of life. He's a rich man. And at his gate is a poor man who stays at his gate because he knows the guy that lives in the house is rich and he hopes that every time he comes out to do his business, he will get crumbs. Hey, just leave your garbage bag right here at the gate and I'll go through it for you and see if there's any food left over. 
Well, as providence would have it, they both die on the same day. And the destination eternally of both of those men is not what you expect. The rich man basically goes to hell. The poor man basically goes to heaven. Well, the rich man in hell still thinks that he's in charge. So he says, oh, Abraham, um, send that poor guy, Lazarus, which it's interesting. We know the poor guy's name. The rich man goes unnamed. He says, hey, Lazarus, can you send him with a sponge to quench this unparchable thirst that I have? And he says, uh, no, can't do that. Well, not to be undone because rich men are used to getting what they want. He says, well, hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus back to my brothers? Because they don't know about what really happens. And if, if he goes, then they'll believe. Remember what Abraham replies? He says, they have the law and the prophets. Let them believe that. Because if they won't believe God's testimony in the scriptures, they won't believe even if someone is risen from the dead. Jesus is about to give them the biggest sign in the world. That sign is the reason we gather today to worship God. But even this sign will not compel belief. It's not the sign that they wanted. They don't believe in a God that can die. What kind of loser Jesus is that? He's already got dubious, you know, he can't produce a, a legitimate birth certificate. You know, we don't know what he is. Isn't this a carpenter's boy? And now we have a God that can die? God, couldn't you do better than that? White horse, big army, total revolution. A God that dies? No. So this is Jesus' first kind of veiled reference to his crucifixion. I don't think the disciples got it until much later. The sign of Jonah, what in the world is the sign of Jonah? But there's a comparison and contrast that is made between Jonah and Jesus, and within it there is a powerful rebuke of the Pharisees that I think is important. So in your bulletin, it didn't quite come out right. It was supposed to be two columns, you know, Jonah and Jesus, and it's like two lines. So it's going to be hard for you to take notes. But here's the contrast. What do we know about Jonah? Jonah was a minor prophet from a foreign land. He went from one country to another, Braylon. He went from Israel to uh, Nineveh, the land of the Assyrians. He was a minor prophet from a foreign land, but Jesus was the Son of God from heaven. Minor prophet from a foreign land, Son of God from heaven. Jonah spent three days in a fish and would have died, but was spit out and delivered. Jesus was dead and buried three days in the earth and burst forth in a glorious resurrection. Jonah, what characterized his preaching? It was a message of doom accompanied by no miracles. The preaching of Jesus was a message of grace attested by many miracles. Here's the thing that's crazy. The Assyrians, the the men of Nineveh, were less enlightened people. They did not have the Old Testament. They were less enlightened people, and they responded to less enlightened preaching. They had a grumpy preacher who didn't want to preach to them. And the Jews had... They were more enlightened people because of what they had already received, and they refused the preaching of the light of the world. And Jesus says, listen, you want a sign? There's one who's more important than Jonah who is here. Jesus is the greatest of God's prophets. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 41, that the men of Nineveh will be involved with God's judgment. That brings us to our second point, that Jesus will bring the greatest judgment because he is the greatest king. One of the responsibilities of a king is to um, met out, measure out justice. And Jesus says there is justice that is coming. Listen to verse 41 again and verse 42. <clears throat> Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and they will condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation and look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and with this generation to condemn it. 
because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Now let me take an aside here for just a second because um, I think this is an important point of clarification. Um, People uh, around Christmas and Easter, Time Magazine, Newsweek, they always want to run questions on what, you know, well, here's 25 reasons why the Bible's not true. Or here's Jesus' first wife. You know, we, we, found, we found Jesus' bones. There's always something that comes up. So what is, my, what is my view of Scripture? I believe what Jesus believed about Scripture. If Jesus is my king, I want to have the same opinion uh, about Scripture as he does. And I want you to notice what he does here. He takes, he takes the story of Jonah, and he treats it as historical, as the basis for a future historical event called the judgment. Now, do you guys believe that judgment will happen? Do you believe that someday men will stand before God and give an account of their life? I don't know any Christian who denies that. But you know, I find all kinds of Christians that go, you know, I don't really know if that Jonah thing was really true. Let me just ask the question, what did Jesus believe? Because if the story of Jonah is fiction, well, then maybe judgment is fiction too. I find it to be much better biblical interpretation to say that Jesus is using the historical reliability of the story of Jonah as the basis for the future literal judgment that will come. And guys, listen, if we believe the cardinal doctrine of our faith is that Jesus rose again, the resurrection is a reality. That is a supernatural thing. That just, that just doesn't happen. Can a supernatural God cause a fish to swallow a man, preserve him, uh, make him like a living submarine, preserve him for three days and spit him out on the land? Listen, if you have a problem with Jonah, you probably have a problem with Jesus too. Because it doesn't seem like Jesus has any problem restoring, re- referring to the historical reliability of Jonah. As a matter of fact, he makes that story the basis for what he says about future judgment. That's important. If we're going to call Jesus Lord, let's have the same view of Scripture that he does. Notice that the Jews are compared unfavorably to two pagan peoples. They're, they're compared unfavorably to the Ninevites, and they're compared again unfavorably to the pagan queen from Ethiopia known as Sheba. Now that's got to be really good because the Assyrians and the Ethiopians were referred to as godless pagans who are far from God. And yet they are the ones who are praised in this passage. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read the passage. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. It's the story of Sheba. It says this, The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame. and The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of Yahweh, and she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage, with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She came to Solomon, and she spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, his servants' dwellings, his attendants' service and their attire, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple. It took her breath away. She said to the king, The report that I heard in my own country about your words and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, it was not even half told. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men! 
How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom. May Yahweh your God be praised. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for, the, for Israel. He made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king four and a half tons of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again did such a quantity of spices arrive as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the people of Jesus' time are compared unfavorably to the queen of Sheba. And again, we have a contrast. The queen lived in Ethiopia and underwent a hard and dangerous journey in her search for truth. The Pharisees, the Jews, had truth incarnate that dwelt among them. They didn't have to travel to go hear them. The queen came to hear Solomon's wisdom. The Jews had the one who is wisdom who dwelt among them. The queen gave great treasure to Solomon. They said four and a half tons of gold. The Pharisees, the Jews, they gave nothing to Jesus. As a matter of fact, they planned to take away his life. The queen had heard reports, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, of Solomon's wisdom. The Jews had the opportunity to enjoy Jesus' teaching face-to-face, live. The queen didn't receive any invitation. There was no monogrammed piece of mail that came to her to say, come and hear Solomon. But yet the Jews were the recipients of multiple invitations and urgings to listen and to repent. And so what's tragic is people have a cheap imitation of the real thing. They have Jonah and they have Solomon. But the Jews had God's greatest prophet, God's greatest king. And yet these people repented at lesser wisdom and a lesser prophet when these had the opportunity to hear God in the flesh. Wisdom personified the one who was the greatest prophet and the greatest king. Now make no mistake, Matthew is very intentional with how he crafts his gospel. In uh, chapter 12, verse 6, in verse 41, in verse 42, you see a formula that Matthew uses repeatedly. In verse 6, he says, hey, 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 one greater than the temple is here. Verse 41, one greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, one greater than Solomon is here. It's almost like uh, Jesus in his teaching has intentionally picked a prophet, uh, the temple or the law, the priesthood, and a king. Say before you stands the one who is the greatest prophet, the greatest priest and the greatest king that God can give you. Jonah was a grumpy preacher, didn't like God's grace, and so didn't want to go and preach to his enemies because he knew God would forgive them. The Bible says that Jesus is a greater prophet than Jonah is. The priests would have to offer sacrifices for themselves. Jesus not only was the high priest, he was the offering to atone for our sins once and for all. Solomon was wise, but he didn't live out his wisdom. He ended up a a profligate who uh, abandoned his God, and yet Jesus is the perfect king. It's important. In verses 43 through 50, we conclude with a a long passage of scripture. Basically, we see this, that Jesus will bring the greatest blessing because he is the greatest brother. Last week, he warned about, you are either for me or against me. You are either gathering or scattering. He says, there can't be neutrality. You have to make some kind of decision about how you relate to me. 
Again, this week we see in very strange language, Jesus pleading for people to enter into a personal relationship with him. And it starts in a really unorthodox way. Look how it starts in verse 43. He begins about talking about demon possession. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I just came from. And returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then off it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. And as a result, the man's last condition is far worse than the first, and that's how it will be also with this evil generation. Wow. What in the world is that about? I don't know. I'll let your Sunday school teacher handle that next week. No. Yeah, all the Sunday school teachers said, I'm calling in sick next week. Um, here's the thing. Here, here's, here's what I think Jesus is talking about here. That there is a danger about moral reform without Christian commitment. There's a danger about moral reform without Christian commitment. Is it possible for you to straighten up your life? A little bit. Can you straighten up your life without Christ? Depends on how you want to define it, but yeah, you can sweep your house out and you can get rid of the clutter. But the end result is that your house is unoccupied. It might be swept and in good order, but it's unoccupied. And what he's saying here is, listen, it's not enough. Cleanup is not enough. Your house must be occupied. And the issue is that to go through some kind of moral reform, fixing yourself without making a Christian commitment is a dead end because man's basic sin nature must be dealt with biblically. We must confess, we must repent, we must place faith in Christ or the removal of a particular sin or even a demon can leave us in worse shape eventually than where we first started out. That's essentially what this passage is saying. Here's the thing, and this is going to be really weird language, um, but we'll, we'll draw a contrast here. This is demon possession. And the goal, if you're a demon-possessed man, is not to get here to self-possession. Oh, got rid of the demon. Well, let me, let me throw all his stuff out on the lawn and tell him, put out the not welcome sign. We're cleaning house. The, the goal is not to get here and go, I'm in possession of myself again. Listen, um, do we do all that good of a job running the world? There would be no news to report if we weren't an abysmal failure at running the world. Okay, let's make it a little more personal. Do we do a good job running our own lives? Nope. Do you really want to be in control of your own life? The goal of demon possession is, yes, to be rid of the demon. But to get here, where you've moved from demon possession to Christ possession. Well, I don't want Christ possessing me. That sounds, that sounds too authoritarian. Well, the Bible refers to it in in a little bit kinder language. It's called being filled with the Spirit. It's called having Christ live in your hearts through faith. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, guys, listen, if you're neutral, your house is cleaned up. But guess who can still move back in? That demon can come back and he can bring seven of his friends. But where I live, no one else can. No one else can. I will be the sole occupant and I will be your bodyguard. I will be your ADT. I will, I will keep them away from you. Because if we just get to the point where we've swept it all out, we go, hey, yeah, look what I've done. 
And the truth is that just like the Pharisees, we can become very proud of our self-effort and go, hey, take your little white glove test. Check out my mantle. It's clean. But it's only clean from a human perspective. If you clean yourself up, that may make you more acceptable to your fellow man. It doesn't make you any cleaner before God. We just sang about what makes us clean. Faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are making a confession that apart from the sacrifice of Christ, there's no hope for us. Jesus is it. Now, we, you might be able to clean up your life better than your next-door neighbor, but if the end result is that you still go to hell, what kind of prize is that? That's a terrible prize. And so he's saying moral reform without Christ will only make you self-righteous sinners who think that you can do it on your own. And the truth is, if you think you can do it on, the own, do it on your own, the end result will be that you're further away from the biblical gospel than when you, where you were when you first started out. You could be demon-possessed and closer to the gospel than morally reformed and further away from the gospel. That's not a good thing. The problem for us is we look at a life that's cleaned up and in order, and we want to congratulate them. Oh, good, you've stopped drinking. You've stopped being abusive. You, you've cleaned up your language. Good job. Is, is that what we settle for? When are our goals no higher than AA? Oh, good, you got rid of your demon. Listen, just because he's harmless doesn't mean that he's holy. And God doesn't want neutrality. He doesn't want to go from a harmful demon possessed to now he's neutral and harmless. No, he wants you filled with his spirit and a warrior for him, controlled by his impulses, desiring his desires, wanting his things. And yet we go, you know, hey, congratulations, you're in control of your life now. For a Christian, those words should never be said of you. That should be an insult. Because Christ should be in control of your life. The arrival of his family in verses 46 through 50 allow him to illustrate this need for a relationship. Listen, you've never been around demon possession. You go, hey, listen, I understand if Jesus lives there, then the demon can't. That's all good and dandy, but I don't know. I don't have a reference for that. Well, Jesus uses the arrival of his family to point again to the need of a personal relationship with him. Um, Look at verse 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the crowds, suddenly his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak with him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. But he replied to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that person is my brother and sister and mother. We don't really know why Mary and his brothers came to see him, to speak with him. Um, We don't have any evidence that Mary believed in him at this point. We don't know when that point happened. The the Bible's kind of silent on that. We know that she did come to believe, but when did that point happen? Did it happen when she was pregnant? I don't know. When Jesus turned 30, things got really weird. And he was the firstborn son. And so he had a responsibility as the firstborn son to care for the family. Isn't that what firstborns do? And now he's getting on the wrong side of the Pharisees, and now the scribes are involved this week. I mean, everybody, Jesus is just getting all, he's, don't rock the boat. He's just going to do it. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to teach the truth. And so it's possible that in the interest of self-preservation, they come to get Jesus to rescue him, because Jesus already knows they're going to kill him. He says he knows it. And maybe the rumor mill is out there, and Mary and his brothers know it, and they want to 
Escort them away and keep them safe. I, I don't think that Jesus is here repudiating his, um, his family. I don't think that's the case. I think he's illustrating, again, the need for a personal relationship with him. And he says something really remarkable. Who is my mother and my brothers? Jesus, the smartest man on the planet, he knows all things. He's the person you want to be your phone-a-friend if you ever go on a game show. Says, um, who is my mother and my brothers? Um, excuse me, Jesus, I know about the whole incarnation thing, but Mary and um, James and all these, those are your mother. And That's not what he's dealing with. He's not saying, you got my birth certificate? You got, you're going to prove it? That's not his point. He says something remarkable that I don't think we catch because we read over it so quickly. He says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And he points to his disciples. And he said, anyone who does the will of my father, anyone who does the will of my father is my mother and brother and sisters. Instead of his family being an issue of biological DNA, he says that his family is predominantly, first and foremost, a faith family. And that any human being that lives can be a part of his faith family by doing the will of his father. Do you hear that? That's the gospel call. That if you want to be Jesus' brother or sister or mother, he has now opened the door to say, you know what, this little group of people over here, yes, that is my physical family. That's not all my family. My family is the people who do the will of my father. He says this, guys, listen. Don't settle with going from here to going here. Do what Ephesians 3.17 says. Allow Christ to dwell in your heart by faith. Don't just play it safe to keep the demons out. Let me live there. Let my power course through your body. Let my desires change your mind and transform it so the things that you want are actually the right things and not the ground beef of life when he offers you the filet mignon of a relationship with him. He says, guys, it's about a personal relationship. In a lot of ways, we do have to remember what is most important. One of the things that disturbs me the most is the, the um, highest divorce rate in America right now is among empty nesters. Empty nesters, why do you think that is? Finally got rid of those pesky kids. And then you look at your spouse and you realize that you have been roommates with benefits. You have, you have taken the marriage relationship, which is a one man, one woman for life relationship, and you've allowed parenting, which is a temporary 18-year assignment, to become a greater priority over your marriage. And in the same way, Jesus says, listen, your physical family is important. But spiritual ties are even more important. And that's not an easy word to hear. He says, get things right. Understand what is temporary and what is permanent. And Jesus says to us this morning, beyond all the demon stuff that we talked about, that he wants to be in a relationship with whoever wants to be in a relationship with him. I, I doubt we have any demon-possessed people here today. I don't hear any shrieking. Nobody's wearing weird clothes. You're clothed, for one thing. That's a good thing. 
Um, Demon-possessed people had a thing with nakedness. Um, We do have people that may be right here. We may not have people over there. We may have people that have lived their entire Christian life the way that uh, Braylon and Whitney have talked about. Oh, yeah, I made a decision. But if your decision doesn't include daily following, then you haven't really made a decision for Christ. You've bought a fire insurance policy. You haven't surrendered your life to the adventure of faith and following Christ. And so today, if your batteries just seem too weak to do what God tells you to do, you bought the wrong brand. You need these batteries. You need Jesus' batteries. You need Him living in you and through you. Because the Christian life will be completely different when you do it in His power compared to the impossible task of trying to do it in your own. And so if your house is unoccupied, Jesus knocks. He says, I will live there. And I will dwell with you forever. And you will be with me for eternity. Which have you chosen? Let's pray. God, we need to hear this word about being in right relationship with you. And God, we thank you that you are not bashful in teaching the truth. You tell us that we will be surprised at the end of time at who makes it and who doesn't. People can fool us. They can look outwardly religious and be, have hearts that are far from you. God, we've even heard, um, not from the scriptures, but from contemporary testimony uh, from this young missionary couple that have said, you know, I thought I had it, but I didn't. I needed to surrender my life to you completely. I needed you to be Lord, not just the guy that I made a decision about what happens when I die. I needed you to be Lord. And today, God, there are those among us that are fighting that same battle, battling with our own limited power when you have given us access to your power supply of unending power and energy in living for you. So God, we pray that you help us by faith to feast upon you, to depend upon you, to walk in your strength, to have your spirit to enable us to live. And if we don't, God, give us the grace of enough humility to admit our need for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.